0: Well, intense I, didn't, I don't know how to feel about that. so uh, yeah, and uh, your pastor Wayne is a, a longtime friend of mine. In fact, we were in, uh, he was my st- uh, student in seminary, and he was in seminary several years ago. So feel real connected to this to this congregation. So as you can see, uh, it maybe even I, I failed to bring my bulletin up, but it has a uh, portraits, right? What does it say on the top there? Oh, on the oh. other side. Yeah, three portraits. So I'm here three weeks, and uh, Wayne and I and Andre were talking about uh, what, uh, what I ought to be uh, speaking on. And so we hit upon this idea of um, uh, three different images of Christ by three different biblical authors. So uh, maybe to give a little bit of a vision for that. So I'm, I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm a professor. I'm technically the reverend... Professor Dr. David Nyström. No one, no one ever really calls me that. But, uh, but, uh, but some, but I mean, to some people, I'm 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 their faculty person, you know, and and they so they approach me sometimes like you know almost reverentially, Professor Nyström, you know. Uh, But to my daughter, my daughter is never reverential in approaching me, and uh, to my wife, I'm often the guy who just hasn't finished his list of things to do. And uh, to four kids in Tennessee, I'm Crazy Uncle David, who sends packages to them to you know let them know that people from California care about them. So uh, all the all of those are true. So just because there are four different pictures, they are, they aren't they aren't contradictory. There are four different accurate images of this person Jesus. So um, so yeah, today there are three theological geniuses whose work we have in the New Testament that pretty much everybody agrees with this John. Uh, a flat-out genius Paul clearly and then whoever wrote Hebrews we frankly don't know who wrote Hebrews sometimes we hear people speculate maybe Paul did but there's nothing in the letter that says that for Paul claims authorship Um, so it's it's anonymous as far as well as far as we know we don't know who wrote it Uh, but even people like Luther and Calvin said they didn't know and they made suggestions so whoever it is they're also uh, brilliant so today we're gonna look at John Next week, Paul. Next week, we're going to do that, Hebrews. So that means we're going to spend an awful lot of time actually looking at biblical passages. Less amount of time listening to me speculate about the weather or something like that. So I uh, hope you're ready for that. Is that okay? Because we can do something else. <laughs> if that, if that's. So today we're going to look at John and his, and his portrait. So, and, and I'm going to divide this into, into two sections. And the first, I'm going to say, it's Jesus' self-understanding. Because John writes a gospel. So part of, obviously, doing what a gospel is, it's about Jesus. So part of it is how John presents uh, the, the central message of Jesus as Jesus understood it, as he, as he disclosed himself. And I'm going to say, son of man, that's his favorite self-designation. So we're going to unpack what he meant by that. And that'd be true for for Matthew, for Luke, or for Mark. But then I'm going to focus in this first half on, more specifically, on what John emphasizes. Uh, So that's why I'm calling the Jesus of John, uh, you know, one angle of vision. Does that make sense? So that's where we're going. So, uh, Son of Man. uh, The Greek, hawias tuanthropo. Uh, anthropology, that last word up there in, in italics, anthropo, so then once we get anthropology. So man, but it means human. The Greek word for male, like a, a man as opposed to a woman, is aner. So anthropology, hahuyas the anthropo, the son of man, it's son of human. And if you're a son of or a daughter of in Hebrew, it means you're like the one to which you're compared. So to say son of man means he's human but what we're going to uncover is he's not human like us he's perfectly human that is he's human he he condescends to live the life here on earth the perfect humanity that adam and eve had before they sinned so if you think about it that way we live a subhuman existence we're less than god originally intended does that make sense so, that, so that, one of the reasons he calls himself that. And he never calls himself Messiah. That's really surprising to people. Because, of course, he, thought, he believed he was the Messiah. He didn't only believe it. He was the Messiah. But um, he didn't ever call himself that. Over 82 times in the Gospels, he calls himself Son of Man. His favorite, his favorite self-designation. Never calls himself Messiah. Uh, so why not? Well, it's because they had a, 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 a very clear and set, concretized expectation of what the Messiah would do and be. So in John chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people by the shore of the lake with a couple of McDonald's fish meals. And, and, the, and after eating, people are, are start to think about this and they go, oh my goodness. And then the text says, this is John chapter 6, 13 to 15. The text says, they wanted to take him by force and make him king what an odd idea to force him to be king and they also mean force him to be king our way and so Jesus has to escape that's the way we are right we get we get an idea in our heads we want someone to be a certain way and we're and we're going to force them so whenever people say like peter you know he says to peter who do you people say that I am this and that and this who do you say that I am you're the messiah you're the christ christ equals messiah and jesus doesn't deny it flesh and blood hasn't reeled this to you peter but then he goes immediately on to talk about son of man so son of man it's his favorite self designation he chose it because they had a if he had said messiah they would have never bothered to listen to him explain himself have you ever been with someone who doesn't, isn't actually listening to you Right? I mean that, that must have just that would have really frustrated him if you called himself Messiah, because they wouldn't have listened to him explain how we understood his own mission. But by calling himself Son of Man, people say, What are you talking about? Is that, right? It even says that in John's Gospel. Who is this son of man? So it's almost exclusively on the lips of Jesus. And then the phrase dies out after the Gospels. So we know it's true to the, to the historical Jesus. So, next slide. Uh, We don't need that one. So, three questions. Why didn't he call himself Messiah? Well, I think I've already answered that. Because they had a very clear expectation. And if he called himself that, he would have had a hard time escaping that expectation. Why send a man? Okay, if if he didn't want Messiah, why didn't he call himself something else? Why not Batman? You know, or something like that. You know, Superman or whatever. So, why did he choose that? Well, because there was an Old Testament background. So I want you to p- get in mind Home Depot. So you're gonna build, you're gonna build a fence. You go to Home Depot and you go up and down those aisles looking for material. And you know if you've been to Home Depot more than once, you've got a, you've got a mental image of like what's there. You may not know exactly where it is, but you know what's there. So, uh, but maybe you've been to Home Depot 50 times and you've never bought Uh, ten foot six by sixes but you know they're there so he chose son of man because those were theological principles that were in the old testament home depot that no one had used to build anything so once he talked about it they would remember oh yes we know what that is so it was familiar but they hadn't used it to construct anything yet I think that Home Depot analogy really works myself. But. So, um, so, uh, so he, cho- he chose Son of Man because they knew it. They knew what it meant. One like a human being. But they weren't sure, okay, what do you mean by it? So what did he mean by it? So this whole, pa- this whole background set of passages. So Genesis one twenty-seven. This goes right back to creation. He made us human beings. And we are the only ones who are made in his image. Snakes aren't, bears aren't, angels aren't. We are somehow, in his, in his mind, in his, his creative work, we are, I think we can put it this way, more dear to him than anything else that's been made. In Ezekiel, throughout Ezekiel, God talks, to he calls Ezekiel... Son of man. He just means, hey, you. I mean, it's a way of saying human being. Psalm 8, right? Remember this? When I consider the heavens, the moon, and the stars which you've established, what is man that you care for him? The son of man that you consider him? Yet you have made him a little lower than... Yeah, actually, it's not the angels. The Hebrew says, a little lower than yourself. The reason we get angels is because that's what the King James has. And the King James is based on the Latin, not on the, not on the Greek or the Hebrew originals. So the, the Hebrew original says a little lower than yourself. So that gets back to when God made us, our fathers, he made us to be in the garden. What, we were the ones who communed with God. We had nothing to hide. And he, w- he walked and talked with us. And we with him. So Jesus is, is saying about that, I want you to listen to me as I call myself Son of Man and listen to what else I say about my relationship to God. And then there's Daniel 7. So, Daniel 7 is a really important uh, theological Home Depot, a piece of a Home Depot that, uh, that most people had forgotten about. But it's, it's critically important for the New Testament. So, Daniel 7 opens, and Daniel has this vision, and it's at night. And it's of the ocean, the sea, and the sea's disturbed. So the sea represents evil in the Hebrew mindset. So if, the sea, so if it's night, that's, you know, right? Freddy Krueger doesn't attack at noon in the Safeway meat aisle. You know, he, he attacks at night. Right. so dark, dark is bad, the sea is bad, and the sea's disturbed. That's why the hymn we just sang had m- mentioned the glassy sea. Evil's been calmed. Daniel 7, the sea is disturbed, and out of the sea come beasts, and these beasts chew up human beings. Body parts go flying out of their mouths. And what Daniel is saying here is, what God is saying is, um, well, then the text says, God says, he's in heaven watching this happen, and God says, okay, I've had enough. And he takes glory and honor and power and authority away from the beasts. And gives it to one like a son of man. So, the, what do the beasts represent? The beasts represent human organizations, politics, corporations, the way we've organized. Remember, at creation, God gave to our parents. He said, "I'm going to trust you with the maintenance of this earth," and this is what we've done with it. We've a We've developed systems that are inhuman that destroy human beings that, that uh, objectify people. And God says, okay, I, I've had enough. So he takes that authority, which he granted to us. I'm going to trust you. Then he takes it away and gives it to one like a son of man. And that one is going to come to earth and bring God's kingdom. Right? That's why Jesus says, if by the finger of God I cast out demons, uh, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. But Daniel 7 also says, this is Daniel 7, 13, all peoples and nations will serve the Son of Man. But Jesus says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give. So where does that come in? Well, that's Isaiah 53. That's the suffering servant passage. Okay, I just gave you like a whole uh, year of graduate-level theology in like seven minutes, okay? <laughs> but but can can you see how can you see that, how that all fits together? And it's a little like you know at the voice at the baptism says when Jesus comes out of the water or when he's being baptized, the voice says, "You are my son." Well, that's Psalm two. At Psalm two is a coronation psalm when a new king would serve in Israel so the first day on the throne. It's as if God has says, "Okay, this day I'm choosing you to be my son." Right? Son of God is like be like God, and then says, "So your job from now on is to represent me as my you're my you're the king, but you're my representative." But then the voice from heaven says, "You're my son." That's Psalm two, in whom I'm well pleased. That's Isaiah forty two. So the voice from heaven is saying to Jesus, "You're my agent." But Isaiah forty-two is the start of the servant songs. But you're to be the suffering servant. So this perfectly parallels that. Okay, that's a lot of information. Right? You you have any questions about that? Any kind of explain anything, clarify that at all? I'm okay answering questions, so (laughs) it's okay with me. So. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yes I have a reading for can you pick up with Psalm it. okay Psalm 8 uh, is uh, Psalm 8 says uh, when I consider the heavens the moon and the stars uh, which you've established what is man you care for him the son of man um, Yet you, you made us a little lower than yourself so it, we typically say angels but that's because uh, that's we're not using the best translation it goes back to the King James so Psalm 8 says God made us in his image. We're the only ones made in his image. I can't do Daniel 7 is too long. You'll just have to talk to other people later on. I'm going to run out of time. Pardon? Kidding. <laughs> yeah. This is a male-female thing, right? Yeah, so like I wasn't paying attention. Test pattern, you know. So. Okay, so now what does he say about himself in John? Jesus and Nathanael, right? This is the very beginning. And Nathanael says, Nazareth, that's a scummy town. What good can ever come from there? And then Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And that's all Jesus says. And suddenly, and, and suddenly Nathanael goes, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Like, that's a leap. So what's that about? So Jesus says, you saw Nathanael under the fig tree and calls Nathanael an Israelite in whom there is no guile so Israelite that goes back to Jacob right his ladder and 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 his name was changed from Jacob to Israel well the Hebrew for Israel Ishrael, is so ish is the word for man is man who wrestles with God but do you remember like in, in the patriarchal narratives uh, Leah and Rachel interesting each one wants what the other has isn't that pretty human um, one wants children, but has the love of her husband. One wants the love of her husband, but has children. But they keep naming their kids' names, and the, Hebrew always, the text always says they name they named it in this because that name sounds like this other thing. So in, biblical, in written Hebrew, there were no vowels. That means you can play around with terms, like if you just change it, put a new different vowel in there, it'll change the meaning. So Jesus is playing with this, just like the Old Testament does. Ish-royal would be the man who sees God. And then he says, you believe because I saw you went the fig tree, but you'll see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So note he's making a reference to Jacob's ladder, that dream of Jacob where he had the ladder to heaven. And what Jesus is saying here now is, look, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the one who's going to open heaven. I'm the one who's going to be the ladder. You're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Nathanael recognizes the reference, he recognizes the play on words, and there's this open heaven ladder theme. 3.13. No one has gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying even while I'm on earth, I have a perfect vision of what God is doing in heaven. In fact, that's what he says in, verse, in, in chapter 5. I do only what I see the Father doing, and everything the Father does that the Son does. So it's not as if like, I see every 67th thing the Father does. I have perfect, unfettered, unadulterated, unbroken vision of what God is doing in heaven. So if you watch what I'm doing... That I I I am doing exactly what the Father is doing, and then in verse twenty-seven, that same passage that starts at five nineteen is in verse twenty-seven where he says Jesus says that God has given him authority to judge. Well, that's a clear reference to Daniel seven. If I'm if I'm if God has taken glory and honor from the from human. Uh, organizations, and given it to the Son of Man. The Son of Man is going to be the one who comes and makes and, and judges, evaluates. Judging can be evaluation, as well as rendering a verdict. And then Jesus says, six fifty three. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Now that's kind of a that's not a passage you should, like, trot out the first thing you do, an evangelistic uh, you know, thing with uh, somebody. You know, that's a little hard to understand. <laughs> but, um, but, and we're going to participate in, in communion in just a minute, which is based on, in part, on this passage. But it has to do with his sacrifice, and it has to do with true life. So we take in those elements where partly what we're saying is we know that on our own, the life we live is really a shadow. It's less than what God intended. But because of what has been done for us by Jesus, we're taking in who he is. So it's a, it's a commemoration, but it's, but it's actually more than that. We're actually saying I, I, we need to live into what he's accomplished. Eight twenty-eight. He says, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am who I claim to be. Lift it up. Well, that's when you crucify him. So there's the sacrificial element. And then just after Judas had left on the night of the betrayal of Jesus, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. So... Jesus knows that Judas' betrayal is is the thing that's going to set in motion the very last uh, bit of the of the drama that leads to the you know the climax, not only of his life but of the of the of the human story. Do we need to have a little commercial break for a little bit while this kind of sinks in? Or is this is okay? You, you following this? Okay, yeah. Now, well, this is now, now we're into our second year of a graduate theological <laughs> class. Okay, so, son of man, Jesus is saying, um, I'm human the way you were meant to be. So he, he empties himself of something, right? He's a physical being on earth. He's really physical. Flesh. So he condescends, and yet his... Uh, his awareness of god his openness to god if you think about it it's it's very much like the garden where adam and eve are naked before god they don't they're not they're not trying to hide from him they're totally open and they have this they walk and talk with him so what else does john say so john's particular portrait of jesus just one angle so John the Baptist says, at the baptism, I saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove and it remained on him. So that's the same word in, in chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me. Abide in me. So in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come on people occasionally for maybe a minute, maybe a day, but then would leave, right? Moses, God, the God's Spirit rested on him a lot, and so his face shone, but after a while, that. You know, it wasn't shining anymore. And he put that veil on to kind of convince people that maybe it was still shining. But Jesus is the one in whom the Spirit dwells continually. We saw 3.13 already. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. And then Jesus goes on to say, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness to heal people, so I must be lifted up. If I'm lifted up, if I'm crucified, that's going to make it possible for you to have eternal life. Without that, you won't. And then a little later on, the one who God has sent, that's me, Jesus says, speaks the word of God, words of God, because God gives the Spirit without a limit. We have limits in our life all the time. I've many times been unhappy that I can't have unlimited soft ice cream <laughs> at Lake Foster's Freeze. You know, the cup just isn't big enough. I was pulled over by the Nevada State Police twenty-five years ago and told, Mr. Nice, we can't drive one hundred miles an hour across Nevada. I was upset by that limit. You know, we have limits all the time. But Jesus here says, wow. God's desire is to give the Spirit without limit, fully. I'm the one who's going to model that for you. No, uh, the Son can do nothing by himself, right? We saw this passage already. So I'm not just acting on my own. I'm not making this up. It's because I have perfect vision of what God is doing in heaven. By myself I can do nothing. As I hear, present tense I judge. So we sometimes think, I don't know, without maybe think reflecting on it, like, like Jesus before he came to earth was up there with God in heaven, like a three-day conference, you know, and here's the elaborate plan. On Tuesday of the third month of year two, you'll do this. Like it's like this long script. But no, it's not that. It's like while he's on earth, he has perfect. unadulterated connection to God in heaven. So he has authority to judge and connection to the Father. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up in the midst of the temple and cried in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. For as the scriptures say, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit, which had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in John's Gospel, glorify, glorification, is the crucifixion. We've already seen that word once. So this is a really, this is a fascinating passage, and it points to the other. Daniel 7 is one, like, one of the two or three most important Old Testament passages for understanding Jesus' mission. The other really critical one is Ezekiel 36 so in Ezekiel 36 God says to the the Hebrews um, yeah I'm going to have to hallow my own name so this is the background of the Lord's prayer have you ever wondered like what does it mean our father in heaven hallowed be your name I mean, I I went all the way through seminary and had no clue what that meant just like go do that hallow thing you do God you know whatever and then when you're done I'm still I'll be here praying still well, the background, the background is Ezekiel 36 because God says, I'm going to have to hallow my own name because the people around you have been looking to you Israelites to draw conclusions about me. And they've drawn the wrong conclusions. But it ain't their fault. They've drawn wrong conclusions about you because you haven't lived according to my principles. They've assumed you are. But you're not. So they've drawn wrong conclusions. So I'm going to have to hallow my own name. And then he says, and you'll recall now, I think you'll recall this passage. I'm going to have to take out that heart of stone in you and put in a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my spirit in you. So what Jesus is referencing here is, we're still stone-hearted. If I am glorified, if I am crucified, what's going to happen? And then resurrected... That's going to make it possible for the spirit of the living God to dwell in you. So, Ezekiel 36, background. So, in the 14th chapter, Jesus says, okay, I'm going away. Remember this passage? I'm going away. But actually, it's going to be to your benefit, because I'm going to send another counselor, the called the paraclete. We'd call that the Holy Spirit. And the the critical phrase here is, you will know him because he is with you and will be in you. So when he's in you, after I'm crucified and then resurrected and the Spirit of the living God is sent to dwell in you, you'll say, wow, we actually recognize that because we sense that's the same spirit that we knew that was the Spirit in Jesus. And that's why Jesus can say, "Up to now, you've asked nothing in my name." Why? Because you don't have the spirit. You can't, you can't. It's not even possible. But from now on, if you ask anything in my name, right? Because you have the spirit in you, so you'll actually have some clue what it means to be in my name, then I'll do it. Okay, so this, now I'm, uh, oh boy. Yeah, so now I'm done, except for the conclusion. See, that wasn't so bad, was it? So, uh, and that is, that's about a whole year of graduate theology compacted. Um, So I'd like to to make some conclusions and have you think about these with me. So the first is, um, as we think about, what does it mean for us to be human? In part, it means there's disorder within, right, that which I want to do, I don't do, had that experience, (laughs) Um, it's now 11, a little after, it's 11.30, not quite, 11.26, so we haven't been awake that long today, and it's a Sunday, so you probably shouldn't be able to resist sinful temptation. Anybody not want to have everything they've done today broadcast on the screen right now? Because I've got my clicker. Anybody? I mean, it, it's, not, it's not hard to screw up, is it? We're broken. And the world around us seems to be, in some ways, quite happy to drive down the, broken, the, the road of brokenness. So there's disorder within, but there's also deranged relationships without. Our world is pretty confused and messy. Sometimes good, honest, truthful people get run over, and sometimes the folks who um, uh, (laughs) are—I'll say—slimy, who deserve to be, who deserve to be, have, have their mom, you know, or the teacher put them in a corner. They succeed. Our world is broken. Because we're broken and we can't fix ourselves. So, conclusion number one we need help from outside. All of us do. Even the most seemingly sweet, perfect, almost sinless need that. Second conclusion as Son of Man, what's Jesus doing? He's bringing God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is wherever God's will is understood and obeyed. Right? We th- we usually think a kingdom is territory. Like we would even say, "Where is East Parkway Church?" We we would uh, maybe even point to a map, and we'd say that the stuff across the street isn't East Parkway Church. So Hafaz al-Assad is president of Syria, but there is whole chunks of Syria where it doesn't matter what he thinks. So, the kingdom of God isn't just territory, it's where God's will is understood and obeyed. But we can't fully obey God without the Spirit within. We're broken. So, the third point is because of what Christ has done, the Spirit of the living God has come to dwell in you if you're a believer. We can, in fact, live into the will of the Father. And so the last point, um, this, is, uh, this, is a, uh, this is from Augustine, who's one of the... Uh, boy, after the New Testament, Augustine is one of the two maybe most important thinkers in history. St. Augustine, city of God, the confessions, tremendously important for Christian thought. And he, he reflected on this, and he said... So this is the Latin is narrow is the dwelling, like domus, like house, domicile, domestic... Narrow is the dwelling of my heart, O oh God. Your Spirit lives in my heart, and I've got him. St- I, I, I you know, I've given him about four hundred and eighteen square feet in my house. I've given him the, the a room off the garage, <laughs> and then he says, um, "Help me to enlarge it." And the Latin word is is like the English word dilatory, like crazy big, way bigger than it needs to be. The spirit of the living God dwells in you if you're a believer. Bottom line for us individually is let us be thoughtful about creating more space for that spirit. So that is the voice we listen to. Not the so many other voices that crowd our lives. Does that make sense? I'm now done. That wasn't so bad. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you that um, you recognize that we are broken and that you've sought to save us from the disorder within and the deranged relationships without. May we open our hearts just a little more this day so that we can listen to the voice of your Spirit and help us live into the life you intended for us, we pray. And all God's people said,